Get in touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, senior writer, Jonathan Strickland, and I write for HowStuffWorks.com. That's the company name. It is not stuff you should know. It is not how things work. It is how stuff works. Sometimes I feel it's necessary to remind folks about that. Anyway, today we're going to pick up where we left off in our last episode with part two on the history of TVs and how they work. So if you don't remember our last episode, we spent a lot of time establishing the basic science that the inventors of television depended upon when they were making their stuff. And we also looked at the curious world of mechanical televisions, which were the first attempt to bring moving, moving pictures to the average home and actually had moving parts inside the TV. But now it's time to transition over to electronic televisions and the insane drama and betrayals that went along with the launch of those electronic televisions. And there are a lot of arguments among historians over whom we should credit as the inventor of electronic televisions. There are very passionate advocates for two primary individuals, although they're not the only ones. There are others as well across the world, in fact. But the two primary ones both had an idea that would transform TVs from these mechanical oddities into the electronic mainstays in homes around the world. And it really depends upon whom you ask as to which one should get the credit. And I'm going to do my best to try and remain objective in this. But I do admit I have my own opinions on this matter, and they're probably going to show through pretty clearly. So we're going to pick up our story in Utah. There was a young inventive lad who worked on his family's farm and that lad's name was Philo Taylor Farnsworth. Philo T. Farnsworth. He was a precocious kid. He had a keen interest in science and physics and electronics. He was born in 1906, and according to his family, when he was just 14 years old, and at this point I believe they had moved to Idaho, he came up with an idea that would lead to the invention of the electronic television. So according to the story, Farnsworth, who was already fascinated with the properties of the mysterious electron, had been thinking about using electrons to transmit images rather than the mechanical methods that were currently in development at that time, the ones that depended upon the NIPCAL disks. And if you don't know what a NIPCAL disk is, just listen to part one of this series. I go into detail about it. Anyway, Farnsworth thought that if you could use electrons to scan and transmit images, you could do so much faster with a higher resolution and a higher frame rate than the mechanical method could manage it. But the question was, how would you do that? And there's a, a kind of an interesting story. Don't know if it's true or not, but it's how his family told it. Farnsworth was pulling a harrow across his family's potato field. A harrow, by the way, is a heavy frame that has tines on it like a fork and uh, you place the frame on the ground so that the tines face downward into the ground and you pull it across the ground uh, typically across ground that's already been plowed and this helps break up clods and remove weeds and uh, otherwise prepare plowed land it can also help cover seeds that have already been planted so according to his family it was while Farnsworth was doing this for his farm, and he was looking at these neat straight lines across freshly plowed earth, they came up with the idea of creating televised images line by line with electrons. So the television screen would effectively be a stack of horizontal lines, and the electron stream would paint the lines in sequence so quickly as to seem like an uninterrupted series of moving images to the human eye. And this would be somewhere around the year 1920 when he came up with this idea. But there's another inventor who factors into this story, and that would be Vladimir Cosmo Zworykin. Now, Zworykin was born in Russia in either 1888 or 1889, depending upon the the uh, paperwork you look at. It seems that 89 is the more accurate one, but I've seen both listed he attended school in Russia and in France. He studied science. Uh, one of his teachers was a guy named Boris Rosing, who in 1907 filed a patent for a television system. They used a mechanical scanning method similar to the NIPCAL disk we talked about in part one, but it used an electronic receiver that used a cathode ray tube to transmit electrons to a screen. Uh, so it was kind of a hybrid between mechanical and electronic. 
And Rosing demonstrated a version of that technology in 1911. So uh, Zwerikin was at least aware of that work at the time. Now, during World War I, Zwerikin joined the Russian Signal Corps, and after the war, he moved to the United States. He got out of Russia just as it was experiencing its own civil war. He grew up in Tsarist Russia, and then there was the Great Revolution in Russia. He got out. Uh, his family worked for the Tsar, so he found work as an employee of Westinghouse after settling in the United States. He actually traveled back and forth a couple of times, but ultimately decided to relocate to the U.S. permanently. So he started working for Westinghouse. And in 1923, he filed a patent for an electron scanning tube, and it would eventually be named the, uh, or it would, be, it would eventually be incorporated in an invention called the iconoscope. That'll be important later on. So Zwerikin began to work on this idea, trying to create a practical application based upon the notion of a scan electron scanning tube. But his early efforts weren't terribly successful. In fact, his employers at Westinghouse, sensing that Zwerikin wasn't making much progress, actually told him he should work on something else. They were not impressed at all. Meanwhile, over in the U.S., Farnsworth was also trying to build a practical electron scanning tube. Now, he called his version the image dissector. And he wasn't the only person to come up with this idea. There was also a German scientist named Max Diekmann and uh, also Rudolf Hell, who was a student of Diekmann's, who filed for a patent for a similar device in Europe. But it seems Farnsworth, who was working completely independently and unaware of that work, uh, was the first guy to create a working version of this particular technology. The tube was meant to replace the mechanical scanners used in Nipkow discs, and it would be inside a camera. So the camera lens would direct light to an image dissector, which would focus that light onto some photosensitive material that would create a voltage, inducing current to flow through a wire. Uh, the current strength was proportional to the brightness of the image, so darker stuff generated a lower current than brighter stuff. And if you used magnetic fields or electrostatic plates, you could then direct that that actual flow. And the image dissector could scan an image many times a second. And then the photosensitive material would convert that light energy into electricity. A receiver that was synchronized with the scanner could then take that current and apply it to a cathode ray tube, which would shoot electrons at the backside of a screen. And the synchronization allowed the receiver to project the electrons in the appropriate order and at the appropriate level on the screen so that you would get an image, a moving image of whatever it was the camera had been looking at. Now, the screen itself is essentially a series of horizontal lines. Each line is made up of points, which we call pixels, that represent a point of light. These are all side by side in those horizontal lines. So the backside of a television screen also has a phosphorus coating on it. And the coating will fluoresce or light up when it is struck by an electron at high velocity. So the cathode ray tube sends electrons shooting out at this phosphorus coating on the backside of a screen. And when the electron collides with the phosphorescent atoms, it causes them to jump up in energy levels. And when the electrons come back down from those excited energy levels, that's when they give off light, when they fluoresce. Uh, the brightness of the light depends upon the amount of energy that hits the, the uh, atoms. So it depends on how fast those electrons are going, or rather the current that's coming from that cathode ray tube. Uh, so all of that is dependent upon how much light came into the camera in the first place. It's a really elegant kind of situation. And you might wonder, all right, well, how does the cathode ray tube actually paint the backside of a television screen? And it's all done with magnets. So let's consider the anatomy of an old-fashioned CRT television set. This is what it would look like if you took one apart. By the way, do not take one apart. If you puncture something, you could end up causing a bit of an explosion, and it is messy and potentially dangerous. So uh, don't do it. You've got capacitors in there, too, that can hold on to a charge. Uh, it's not safe. But this is what would happen if you could you know, do an exploded view. So I mentioned that the screen represents a series of horizontal lines. We're going to be a bit U.S.-centric in this part of the episode, so I can des describe how CRT televisions work. But just know it works the same way in other places. It's just the actual number of horizontal lines and uh, frames per second are a little different. So in the United States, with old CRT sets, the screen was a stack of 525 horizontal lines of pixels. And it's the CRT's job 
the cathode ray tube's job to paint each of those lines multiple times per second to refresh the image on screen and transmit the, that sense of movement. So you've got your CRT, and that's shooting electrons at a very tightly controlled beam on the backside of the television screen. So how do you steer the electrons? You use magnetic fields. Because remember, electrons are negatively charged particles. So you can push them with similar similar negative charged or negative uh, magnetic fields, or you can attract them, you can pull them with positive magnetic fields. So you can actually change the flow of electrons by applying magnetic fields in a very controlled way. Uh, also, the magnetic fields are a great band, and you should listen to them. But it's kind of tangential to this discussion, so I don't know why you brought it up. Now, using magnetic fields generated by a coil of copper wiring, uh, the television paints each line of phosphorescent material on the backside of the screen one by one in a row from top to bottom. So it goes top, left to right, down to bottom. Uh, and it does it line by line. The electron beam sweeps across the first horizontal line at a blinding speed. It slams electrons into the phosphors to generate the light you see on the other side. Uh, and there's also an electron absorbing layer, so it catches all those electrons. They don't just keep on shooting outside the TV screen and getting involved in all your business. They stop at the screen because of that absorbent layer. Now, the beam follows a pattern that's called a raster scan. So this is where we paint that first line from left to right. And when it gets to the end of the line, it jumps back to the beginning of the next line. So it doesn't go left to right and then right to left. It goes left to right, jumps back down to the beginning of the next line. It goes left to right again, sort of. More on that in a second. Now, that is called the horizontal retrace when it gets to the end of a line and moves to the beginning of the next line. Uh, then you've got it going all the way down the entire length of the screen until it gets to the bottom right corner. At that point, the beam switches off and it relocates it to the top left part of the screen. That's the vertical retrace. It's kind of a diagonal line from bottom right to top left, so it gets it ready to start painting again. Uh, and now I've got to explain that sort of I mentioned earlier. You know, I said it, it sort of goes to the next line. It's because of interlacing. See, the whole screen is refreshed 60 times per second. At least that's the idea. You want a 60 time per second refresh rate. Uh, that's not what the earliest electronic televisions did, but ultimately that was the goal for U.S. televisions. Uh, except that you really are doing 30 frames a second because you're alternating lines. So I mentioned there are 525 of these horizontal lines. And I mentioned that the electron beam paints that horizontal line one after the other. Only it takes a lot of work to paint 525 lines of, a, of uh, uh, pixels 60 times every second. And our human vision really doesn't need the screen refreshed that frequently to experience what seems to be movement to us. You could half that and you still have convincing movement. Uh, so film works at 24 frames a second. Television works at 30 frames, although they're not really frames. It's more like fields per second. Uh, but it alternates. It's kind of weird. So the first time the electron beam goes down, it will uh, paint every other horizontal line. And then the second time, it'll paint all the even-numbered pixels in a horizontal line. You know what? This is going to require a lot more explaining, but before I jump into that, let's take a little break right now and thank our sponsors. All right, so instead of painting the entire screen 60 times a second, let's just paint half the screen 30 times a second and the other half 30 times a second. And then we do that just by alternating the lines. That's what interlacing is. So CRT, the cathode ray tube, would shoot electrons at the left top corner on line one. At the end of line one, it would go to the horizontal retrace, only instead of starting at line two, it actually starts on line three. It skips line two. It goes down line three, goes down to line five, down to line seven, etc., until it gets all the way down to 525, in theory. Not all television broadcasts actually used all 525 lines, but that doesn't really matter. 
It gets down to the bottom. It's time for it to go to the vertical retrace. Only instead of going back to line number one, it actually goes to line number two, and it starts to do the same process with all the even-numbered lines. So it goes to the end of line two. Horizontal retrace brings it to line four. It goes to the end of line four. Horizontal retrace brings it to line six. And it does that through that next sequence. It does both of these things 30 times every second for each. 30 times each for every second that goes by. So it's so fast that we don't detect that only half the number of horizontal lines are being refreshed every, any given moment. It's way too fast for us to be able to see that with our human eyes and human brains. To us, it's just an uninterrupted sequence of moving images. Uh, this is where we can take advantage of human limitations. The technology is able to perform at a level beyond what we humans can experience. So that allows you to make some shortcuts on the technology side. And as I said before, it's easier to refresh half the screen 30 times a second than a full screen 60 times a second. Kind of nifty. Now, eventually you would get to progressive scan systems. And progressive scans do every single horizontal line every you know, 60 times a second or however many times it refreshes. You'll hear about crazy refresh rates at like 480 hertz, which means 480 times a second it's refreshing the whole screen. But that's way off further into the future. We are not covering that in part two. You'll have to wait for part three to get to the high refresh rate stuff. So you got the basic idea of how these electron scanning tube machines worked. Uh, the prototypes that Farnsworth and Zwerkin created were much more primitive than what I just described, but uh, they used similar techniques. It was based upon essentially the same principle, just it was more limited in what it could do. Now let's get to the drama of the story, because it gets pretty crazy. So Farnsworth grows up. He's had this dream since he was 14 of a method of creating television. He starts to really investigate it further as he gets older. Uh, he takes charge of his family farm after his father passes away. But then he ends up meeting and then marrying a woman named Elma Pem Gardner in 1926. And shortly thereafter, they moved to California. In fact, according to some accounts, as soon as they got married, they moved to California. And originally they moved not too far away from Caltech because Farnsworth was hoping that he would be able to use the location to help further his own efforts in developing this electronic television idea he had. Uh, some would say that he was obsessed at this point. And the following year, in 1927, the two happily married people would relocate to San Francisco. And there, Farnsworth was able to find some funding from investors, which was a tradition that many startups follow to this very day. If you have a startup in the tech world, Chances are you're going to San Francisco to take a lot of meetings. That year, 1927, Farnsworth applied for a patent for his invention. The title of the patent was Television System, and in it he described his method for capturing, transmitting, and receiving moving images. Now, Zorkin had filed his patent back in 1923, but the U.S. Patent Office still had not granted that patent. It was still pending. Moreover, Zwerkin's approach, while similar to Farnsworth's, wasn't exactly the same, and Zwerkin had had no real success up to that point in getting it to work in the real world. He could not make a practical demonstration of it. The attempts he made were very muddled. Now, Farnsworth, by comparison, was able to get his system working in 1927, although that initial demonstration, which really was more just a proof of concept, was very modest. His first transmission was a horizontal line. It wasn't exactly the Super Bowl, but it did say that he was on to something, and he could capture, transmit, and playback moving images electronically. So he kept at it, and in 1928, he brought some reporters over to his laboratory, and he held a demonstration that was a little bit more impressive. It showed a very blurry but clearly moving image on the screen, uh, and it was at a refresh rate of 20 pictures per second, so much less uh, advanced than what we would see later on, but enough to get the reporters excited. And it showed actual motion, so that really got people talking about his methods. And in 1930, the U.S. Patent Office granted Farnsworth his patent. Now, keep in mind, Zwerkin still did not have a patent for his invention. 
uh, he was still encountering problems with his approach. So in 1930, he decided to visit Farnsworth. Farnsworth was known for getting this method to work, and Zorkin was still running into problems. So he arranged a visit, and he went and visited for about three days, according to Farnsworth's wife. And he learned all about the methods Farnsworth used to create this electronic television, and he even supposedly watched Farnsworth assemble one of the scanning tubes. He then returned to Westinghouse and attempted to reverse-engineer Farnsworth's invention, and he was later approached by RCA and began working for them. Uh, RCA had already made an enormous amount of money by dominating the radio industry at that point, and at the helm of the Radio Corporation of America was a guy named David Sarnoff, who I'm going to talk a lot about in this episode. He was originally from Russia, and Sarnoff was the type of guy who, if he wanted to dominate an industry, he would do so big time. He would go in guns figuratively ablazing. He's really good at it, too, to a point where you might call him um, ruthless, Really, Sarnoff led RCA through an era of prosperity for the company during the radio days. RCA had held on to patents uh, that had to do with radio components, and they also owned broadcast stations and entire networks, actually. Essentially, if you were in the business of radio back in those days, you were paying RCA for that privilege. Uh, you might be paying licensing fees. Uh, you might be paying licensing fees just to build radios for people to buy. Or you might be paying fees so that you could broadcast on stations. Uh, pretty much any way that there was a way to make money on the radio, some of that money was going to RCA at that time. In fact, uh, the company even had a, a basic philosophy, which a lot of people have alluded to over the years, which was that RCA would not pay licensing fees. RCA was the company to whom you paid licensing fees. Um, they also created a major broadcast company, NBC. You might have heard of it if you're in the United States. It is the oldest of the major broadcast networks in the U.S. Uh, this was back when RCA was still part of General Electric, which eventually it would get spun off from General Electric and become its own company. Uh, also, if you want to be technical, RCA created ABC as well. ABC was originally part of NBC. They had created two kind of parallel networks, both of which were called NBC at the time. But uh, the government stepped in and said, hey, you're muscling in on everybody. you got to break this up. And so eventually they spun off part of this network, uh, which would later become ABC. So in a way, RCA was responsible for two of the three major broadcast companies in U early U.S. television. And these sort of practices got really serious, so serious, in fact, that the Department of Justice got interested. And on May 30th, 1930, David Sarnoff was called before the Department of Justice, and the DOJ was concerned that RCA was using its patent portfolio to suppress competition. So this is not a new thing. Uh, it might sound familiar to anyone who has followed news about patent law in general. There have been a lot of stories about companies like, say, Apple and Samsung using patents to put pressure on each other. Uh, or you might have heard stories about patent trolls. These are entities that hold patents that seem to have no intention of actually making anything with the patent. Rather, they just sit on the patents and either require people to license the patent or they end up just waiting for people to try and make something that infringes or seems to infringe upon that patent, and then they sue them. And that's how they make money. Uh, there are a lot of people who criticize that particular method of uh, business. So this court case required RCA to eventually make some concessions and to back off a bit on its practices, although the company also won a few uh, victories during all the legal maneuvers. It also is the court case that led to the birth of the modern Federal Communications Commission, or FCC. This is the one that replaced the Federal Radio Commission earlier. Uh, that same FCC would almost immediately force RCA to split ABC off from NBC. So RCA's troubles began with this lawsuit, but they didn't end with them. Uh, so... Sarnoff, though, had Zworkin as an asset. He went out and he hired Zworkin away to try and develop television because Sarnoff said, we did this thing with radio and made a huge amount of money. I think television's going to be the next big thing because it still wasn't a thing yet. Not very many people had mechanical TVs and nobody had electronic TVs yet. And there was a problem already. Sarnoff 
was upset because he saw that Farnsworth was seeing some success and Zworkin had not yet met with success, even though he had a very similar idea. And Farnsworth had already secured a patent in 1930. So now there was patented information out there and RCA does not pay licensing fees. That was dead set against his corporate philosophy, Sarnoff's corporate philosophy, I should say. I will often equate Sarnoff and RCA in this episode, but it's really just to talk about the specific era of RCA's history. And there was another problem, which was that the glory days of RCA were in danger at this time because the government's intervention meant the company had to slash licensing fees or else be charged with suppressing competition. Uh, the Great Depression was also having a, a major impact on the consumer electronics field. People didn't have the money to spend on luxury items like radios. And that's what the main product was for RCA. So it was, it was really a difficult time for the company. Uh, RCA stock dropped 90% in value, but Sarnoff really thought that television was the, the cart that was going to take him back to success. He was going to hitch his horse to that one. Or hitch his cart to that horse, I guess I should say. I go backwards. I put the cart before the horse. Literally. No, just figuratively. Literally, it just doesn't work. Anyway, he thought that TV was going to be the next big thing. So he really wanted to get ahead of this. And the problem was Farnsworth was in the way. Because Farnsworth had filed this patent, and RCA does not want to pay licensing fees. So in April 1931, Sarnoff actually paid a visit to Farnsworth's lab. Now, Farnsworth wasn't in his lab at the time that Sarnoff was there. He wasn't in town. But his wife showed Sarnoff around. By the end of the visit, Sarnoff said to his partners that he felt they could make televisions without infringing on Farnsworth's patents. It wouldn't be a problem at all. And that RCA was in the clear. However, not that long after his visit, he must have had second thoughts. He must have either heard something that changed his mind, or maybe one of his attorneys said something. At any rate, he went to Farnsworth and said, hey, buddy, how about I buy your company for $100,000 and you can come work for me. You can be an RCA employee and we'll just buy your company. And of course, all the intellectual property, like your patents, we'll own those forever and ever. And people who want to make TVs will have to pay us a licensing fee. Does that sound good to you, buddy? And uh he probably didn't word it exactly that way. But Farnsworth did not think the deal was great. I mean, a hundred grand was a huge amount of money in 1931, and it's still a good chunk of change. I'll happily accept a hundred grand from anyone who's willing to get rid of it. Uh, I'll take it. I mean, assuming it's not like a money laundering thing. I don't want in on that. I got troubles of my own. But a hundred thousand dollars in 1931, way more money than more buying power than what it would get you today. But Farnsworth suspected that his patent was actually worth more than a hundred grand, and that he could make more money licensing his ideas to interested parties. In fact, that's exactly what RCA wanted to do with his work. So Farnsworth's like, I don't really feel like I need to go work for you. I can do this on my own. So he rejected the offer, which did not make David Sarnoff very happy. Farnsworth then attempted to work with one of RCA's competitors, Philco. No relation to Philo, T. Farnsworth, but Philco, which was an East Coast company that was also looking at getting into televisions. They also created, did radios as well. Now, according to Pem, his, you know, Farnsworth's wife, RCA got word of Farnsworth's plans that they were able to pick up transmissions when Farnsworth was demonstrating his, uh, technology to people over at Philco. And once they learned that Farnsworth was going to go work with Philco, RCA decided to put the screws to Philco. Again, this is according to Farnsworth's wife. And so RCA essentially went to Philco and said, if you hire this guy, if you, or rather, if you become his customer, if you license his technology, we're going to revoke our licenses to you to make radios and you won't be able to make radios anymore. It would be illegal for you to make radios because you would be doing it in violation of our intellectual property. And Philco then backed off from working with Farnsworth. So that's according to Farnsworth's wife. It sounds pretty uh, vicious, if you ask me. So Farnsworth was left without a customer. 
Now, in 1933, Zworkin would file a patent for what was now called the RCA Iconoscope, and the 1933 patent application included references to the earlier 1923 application. And in 1938, he would essentially, he would eventually get this uh, patent granted to him by the U.S. Patent Office. Sarnoff actually used this filing as an argument that RCA really invented television because Zworkin's original patent application was in 1923. That was four years before Farnsworth filed his patent in 1927. So Sarnoff's saying, look, we've got it on file here. Sure, it's not a granted patent, but the fact that the idea existed before Farnsworth ever filed a patent for it tells us that we own this idea, not this guy. So the big issue at stake was really not paying that licensing fee. And he didn't want to have to, Sarnoff didn't want to have to pay Farnsworth a penny if he could help it. So RCA decided to challenge Farnsworth's patents in court in one of the ugliest tech lawsuits in history. I'll get into that more in just a moment, but let's take a quick break to thank our sponsor. Let's get into this massive lawsuit that RCA leveled against Farnsworth. So Zwerkin really had the backing of RCA and all their lawyers and Sarnoff behind him. And at the crux of the case was a claim in Farnsworth's patent. And that was claim number 15, which stated the device was designed to display an electrical image. That was the term Farnsworth created, an electrical image. And it is so intrinsic to the way televisions work, electronic televisions work, that there just was no real wiggle room for RCA. There was no way RCA was going to be able to make televisions without paying a license fee to Farnsworth because there was no way to get around the fact that their devices had to create an electrical image. It was pivotal to an electronic television. So... They thought, well, how can we get around this? Let's undermine the claim. And that's where they started to try and make a case saying Zworkin, uh, that his, uh, 1923 patent application was for a device that also would create an electrical image. And since it was filed in 1923, although not granted, uh, it still wasn't granted at the time of this lawsuit, which began in 1931 and lasted for about four years, uh, it, even though it hadn't been granted yet, it was a show that this idea was around before Farnsworth had filed for it, and that really RCA should have ownership of that idea, not Farnsworth. But here was the problem. They couldn't prove that Zwerikin's approach would, you know, work. And without it working, it was hard to make an argument that Zwerkin had really come up with this idea. Uh, you know, a patent is supposed to be for an idea that ultimately can work. If it is proven to not be a workable idea, then the patent is not supposed to be valid. Now, the team cited a supposed 1934 demonstration toward the end of this lawsuit. Uh, they said, hey, in 1934, Zwerkin uh, demonstrated that his system works. He built a working version of what he had uh, proposed back in 1923, but there was no evidence to support this claim. There were no eyewitnesses of this demonstration that they could bring up. There was there were no lab notes to show what had happened or the procedure that Zwerkin used. Uh, so ultimately, they could not prove that the 1923 version of what Zwerkin was saying would ever work and that Farnsworth's idea seemed to be the first one to actually be viable. So ultimately, the patent office decided in favor of Farnsworth. He won. They RCA could not get around the fact that Farnsworth had a patented idea that they would have to license if they wanted to make televisions. Now, by that time, Farnsworth himself was pretty sick of the whole thing. And sick is the operative word. He had bleeding ulcers and... Uh, you know, the stress had really gotten to him over the course of several years. Uh, David Sarnoff once joked that they must have spent about $50 million, RCA must have spent $50 million in this lawsuit just to get around licensing fees and to secure them for themselves. Um, 
brutal, right? But things were starting to look up for Farnsworth. The television era was poised to take off. And then a little thing called World War II happened. Well, World War II obviously changed everything. Priorities changed dramatically. Uh, once the United States entered into the war, the U.S. government suspended consumer electronics manufacturing and rededicated all those assets to wartime production. So Farnsworth, who was now free and clear to pursue these working relationships with various television companies and to get licensing fees, suddenly found himself without any customers because consumer electronics was shut down while World War II was going on. When the war ended, Farnsworth had a little more than a year before his patents expired, because patents don't last forever. Once they expire, that information is public domain. Anyone can invent anything based off a patent that has expired and not have not be expected to pay licensing fees, assuming that you haven't infringed upon some other patent with your new invention. But uh, yeah, that meant that once those patents expired, anyone could make an electronic television based on Farnsworth's approach and not have to pay Farnsworth a penny. He never made the money he should have off of his invention. And in fact, when his patents expired in 1947, there were only about 6,000 television sets in the entire United States. Just a few years later, that would number in the millions. So... They were, we were literally on the precipice of the electronic television age when Farnsworth's patents expired and he wasn't able to become insanely wealthy off of his ideas. Other people became insanely wealthy off of his ideas, but he was not able to do that. Uh, he didn't, he didn't just give up. He actually went on to work in another, you know, boring, normal job, nuclear fusion. Yeah, Farnsworth, the TV guy, went on to work in nuclear fusion. Now, his work would not lead to a viable nuclear fusion power solution. If it did, our world would be totally different right now. We're still trying to develop nuclear fusion power that is sustainable. Uh, we've seen some promising early experiments, but nothing that is truly a sustainable nuclear fusion power plant. Uh, but Farnsworth's work actually meant that we were able to create neutrons using his approach. So that was very important for other scientific work and experiments. So he still made some very significant contributions, even though his patents had expired and he wasn't able to really uh, profit off of them the way he should have. As for RCA and Sarnoff, they continued to throw their weight around or at least attempt to. Uh, the late 1940s saw companies like RCA start to look into ways to incorporate color in television broadcasts. And this is still at the very beginning of TV. So black and white was still, you know, very important, but they were th already thinking ahead. How can we incorporate color into this? But there were actually other companies that were also looking at incorporating color into television broadcasts. And uh, RCA had made a huge amount of money by defining the standards for radio. So what they wanted to do was do the same thing, but for color TV. If they made their fortune by creating a standard in one format, why not do the same thing for another format? Similar to what they were trying to do with just basic television when they tried to undermine Farnsworth's uh, work. So to that end, Sarnoff decided to sue a major competitor to RCA. That would be uh, CBS. CBS was working on color television at the same time. CBS, by the way, was the one major broadcast company that RCA did not have a hand in creating. Now, the lawsuit went all the way up to the Supreme Court, and RCA once again found itself on the losing side. The Supreme Court sided with CBS, saying that the company could continue to create its competing standard. So RCA was free to continue working on their standard. CBS was free to work on their standard. It, this didn't define the standard because the Supreme Court had nothing to do with that. They were just uh, deciding whether or not CBS would be allowed to pursue this. And they said, yes. So RCA was not able to cut it off there. But Sarnoff had another trick up his sleeve. He had his research and development over at RCA working on developing a superior color technology uh, for television 
that would be better than CBS's approach, but more importantly, would be backwards compatible for old RCA black and white television sets. Which meant if you owned an RCA black and white television set and you were tuning into an RCA color broadcast, you could still watch it. Now, it wouldn't be in color because nothing's magically going to turn a black and white TV into a color TV. But you could actually watch what was going on. It would just be in black and white. The CBS approach, however, was not backwards compatible. If you wanted to watch a CBS color broadcast using an old black and white RCA set, you actually had to go out and buy a $100 adapter, and $100 was a huge amount of money back then. Still a pretty hefty sum if you just want an adapter for your television. And, uh, and they, so RCA was saying that, well, by making ba- ours backwards compatible, it's more attractive, right? Like, not everyone has a color set. And when color sets hit the market, they're going to be incredibly expensive. Most people are going to stick with their black and white sets. So if we make a color broadcast strategy that works even with older black and white sets, we have an advantage. And they also had already seeded the market with thousands, millions of black and white RCA sets. So they knew that the customer base was going to be on their side. So even if you were to argue that CBS's approach would be superior or cheaper or faster to market, the fact that it didn't have that backwards capability was what held it back. And sure enough, it ended up working. The uh, FCC and the National Television Standards Committee decided to go with RCA's standard instead of CBS's standard to be the industry standard. And this was still years before anyone had really gone into color TV manufacturing. Uh, it was all part of the long game. But Sarnoff could see where things were going, and he said, we got to get ahead of it so that we're the ones who define the standard. That's how we make the money, because RCA gets paid the licensing fees. By 1958, RCA standard was the way to go, and the company collected licensing fees, but the Justice Department made sure that RCA stuck to what was defined as reasonable prices. So that meant that they couldn't do the same thing they had done back in the radio days, uh, but they still were collecting lots of licensing fees, so it was great for the company. Now, both Sarnoff and Farnsworth passed away in 1971. Zworkin actually outlived both of them. He would pass away in 1982 in Princeton, New Jersey. And that's the story of the first electronic televisions, but there's still more to talk about. Uh, I mentioned color TVs, but how the heck do they work? So I'm going to wrap up this episode with a quick lesson on color TVs, and the next episode we'll look at developments in television like LCDs, LEDs, plasma screens, high dynamic range, and more. But first, let's talk about color TVs. So the first color TVs, which were using the CBS method, harken back to those mechanical television set days. In fact, CBS color TVs had a mechanical element to them. They had a color wheel. So it was similar to what John Logie Baird, the Scottish inventor who worked on mechanical television sets uh, 20 years earlier, what he had been doing, he had been using a color wheel to create color television. Well, CBS wanted to do the same thing. So a cathode ray tube would be between the wheel and the screen, and that would provide the stream of electrons. Spinning the wheel would allow you to get whatever color you needed for that particular pixel. And because the wheel could spin quite fast, and because our brains will merge different colors into new color all on its own... The speed of transmission is what did all the work. Our brains just would assimilate the information we had to see a color that was represented by lots of individual colors being presented to us very rapidly within the span of a second. So in other words, you can get red, green, or blue because that's what the color wheel had. Those were the primary colors on the color wheel. But if you wanted to get purple, then what you're getting is a series of red and blue pixels that are presented so fast that our brain just ends up combining those into a purple pixel. It's super cool. So I I love this because it, again, depends upon the limitations of the human brain to make the technology work. And uh, it really makes me appreciate both the amazing work of the technology and also how weird humans are. And I include myself there. 
along with you, human. Uh, so you've got this, this super fast method of presenting colors that end up sort of bleeding into one another to represent whatever the actual color needs to be for the picture. Um, and it was really nifty, but the mechanical approach didn't end up becoming the standard. Again, that was not compatible with the old black and white television sets. So instead, RCA went with an electrical standpoint and used colorful phosphors. So the stuff that fluoresces on the back of your television screen, so when you're looking at the front of the television screen, the opposite side has that phosphorus coating on it. Well, it would have colorful phosphors, not just ones that would shine white or gray, depending upon the amount of elect uh, or the energy of the electron hitting it. So a color CRT t television has three electron beams, not just one. And those beams are called red, green, and blue, although the beams themselves don't have any color to them because they're electrons, but they're dedicated to red, green, and blue phosphors. Uh, the screen itself would have red, green, and blue phosphors that would be arranged as dots or lines on the back of the screen, and each pixel has three phosphors, right? It has, each pixel has a red component, a green component, and a blue component. And between the phosphorus coating and the electron beams was a little mesh screen. Uh, it was actually called the shadow mask. And the holes in the shadow mask match up with the phosphorus dots or stripes, depending upon the actual model of TV. So color TV signals are really similar to black and white TV signals, but in addition to intensity, it includes a component called a chrominance signal. And this involves superimposing a special sine wave over the top of the black and white television signal. And what kind of special sine wave, I hear you ask? Pipe down. Nobody asked you. But if you really have to know, it's a 3.579545 megahertz sine wave. Are you happy? No? Sorry, neither am I. Anyway, the chrominance signal indicates which color to display based on a phase shift. So if you're looking at a sine wave on a graph, a phase shift is shifting it to the left or to the right, so it's out of phase with its original position. So a shift of 195 degrees would indicate blue. Uh, a shift of just 15 degrees would be yellow. And shifting it would tell, I'm using air quotes, the electron beams which color it needed to represent. So that shift would give the, the electron beams the information necessary to replicate whatever color you were looking for. And uh, this would give the electron beams the ability, ability to scan those phosphors in the correct order, the correct frequency to generate the color necessary for you to perceive it on the screen itself. And again, that rapid succession of lines on display and the colors would create that illusion in our minds that we're watching a color moving image on a screen. It's really kind of incredible that just by using red, green, and blue, you could replicate all sorts of colors, just depending upon the amount of time they're on screen and the frequency that you switch back and forth between those three. And that that's all you need to create all the different colors that we can perceive. Now, the first color television set was made by Westinghouse, and it cost a whopping $1,295 in March 1954. If you want to adjust that for inflation, which I did, it comes out to almost $12,000 in today's money, which is pretty expensive. And here's a shocking fact. They put out a full-page ad in the New York Times that 60 New York stores were carrying those sets, and they sold zero of them from those stores. Now, eventually, they were able to move about 30 sets. I think they produced about 500 total in that first run. But I guess the only people who were capable of buying them were color-starved millionaires. Everyone else couldn't really afford such a thing. So they eventually slashed their prices down to an affordable $1,110. Still a princely sum, as Chris Paulette and I would used to say. Most of those sets that Westinghouse made were never sold. Uh, there, were, there was hardly anything to watch in color back in 1954. There were very few color broadcasts, and it was just so darned expensive. And it also would break down fairly easily, so uh, never really took off 
at that time. Color television sales were actually really slow until about the mid-1950s, um, all the way up into the 1960s. It was just not a whole lot to move them. Uh, but then a combination of lower prices and more programming started to create a bit of a demand in the early 60s. Uh, one of the companies that was instrumental in color television taking off in the United States was Disney. In 1961, Disney began to broadcast the wonderful world of color, which was essentially an advertisement to go out and buy color televisions when you get down to it, because you couldn't really enjoy the color broadcast without one. I actually remember watching uh, an episode of The Wonderful World of Color where Professor Von Drake explained how color television was so much better than black and white TV and did so in a song called The Spectrum Song. And if you've never heard The Spectrum Song, you need to look that up because it's amazing. I will not sing it. Now, keep in mind, I'm talking about a show I saw as a rerun because I'm not that old. I wasn't born in the 60s, so stop looking at me that way. Now, the first year to see color television sales outpace black and white TV sales wasn't until 1970. So while everyone was fighting over the color television standards in the late 40s and early 50s, it wasn't until 1970 that color TVs were actually outselling black and white televisions. The technology had been around for more than 15 years before it began to overtake the old black and white sets. Now, I want you guys to remember that when I talk about HDTV in a future episode, because it's a very different story. Some people were thinking, like, how long was HDTV around before people started actually using it? Not as long as we went from color uh, from black and white to color, rather. But for now... It is time to sign off. In the next episode, I'll talk more about the display technologies that competed with CRT systems and how they work, as well as chat about stuff like flat screen TVs or HDR televisions or 2K and 8K TVs and more. But if you guys have any questions or comments, any suggestions for future episodes or people I should have on this show, please let me know. You can email me. The email address for the show is techstuff at howstuffworks.com. Or you can drop me a line on Facebook or Twitter. The handle for the show at both those locations is techstuffhsw. And I'll talk to you again really soon. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 